The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2015, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon was from Saturday, June 6th. Cold Gold, award-winning lager beer, presented by Ben Bailey from Trogues Brewing Company and Jason Oliver from Devil's Backbone Brewing Company. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Andy Sparhawk. I'm the craft beer program coordinator for the Brewers Association. Uh, I'm here to welcome you to Savor an American Craft Beer and Food Experience. Thank you, thank you, thank you for, for coming and coming early for this great salon. Uh, before we get started, uh, just want to have uh, two ground rules. Uh, first of all, these are being recorded uh, by Craft Beer Radio and then will also be available on craftbeer.com. So any questions that we may have, uh, let's try really hard to uh, summon me over. I will run over and, and hand you this microphone so uh, your great question can be uh, heard by everybody and, and we'll continue learning. Uh, second, question, or second rule is that uh, uh, you'll all obviously have beer in front of you and uh, we'll let uh, Ben right now uh, uh, tell you when you can drink the beer. Obviously, this is Devil's Backbone's uh, beer right now. Feel free to, to drink it. Uh, we're going to get back to that as Jason is running a little bit late. Uh, but here, we're going to talk about lagers. Uh, and obviously, Savor is all about beer and food. And, you know, one of my thoughts is that lagers are probably overlooked in, in the beer and food world. Uh, but, you know, lagers are, can be just as, uh, you know, huge variety of types and colors and weights and everything and really kind of lend themselves to awesome, awesome food pairings just as much. Uh, and we have two really great lager producers here, or will be. Uh, Jason's on his way. But this is Ben Bailey from Drogues Brewing Company. Why don't you guys give him a nice warm welcome and uh, we'll get started. Hi, thanks everybody. Uh, so, I guess if to uh, repeat, I guess, a little bit of what Andy said, like, if they are overlooked as lager beers in general, I think it's uh, a result of their incredible success across the world, uh, because they're still the, the most popular beer style in the world. It's just, I think, as far as uh, craft beer is concerned, that's been maybe the reason that people want to differentiate and not do the thing that everyone else is already doing. Um, that being said, I still think they are some of the most exciting beer styles within the whole lager classification. Um, I'm going to start off, I guess, with a little bit of history of lager brewing. I promise it'll be pretty short, and then we'll get right into the beer itself. Um, so lager beers are definitely one of my passions. Um, you could even go so far as to say like lager beer in general is a religious experience. Um, part of the reason being that the roots of lager brewing began with uh, the Benedictine monks back in around 500. Uh, monks brewed beer in order to fund their monasteries. Um, over time, they improved their methods, and one of these improvements ended up being that they would not brew beer during the summer. In fact, that improvement ended up being anchored in the Reinheitsgebot later on. Uh, they also figured out to move some of the foam from one of the batches into the next because the beer fermented better. 
Uh, little did they know they were moving yeast from one batch to the next. So, a thousand years ago, they are already doing selection of yeast, just not, they didn't know they were doing that, but they were definitely already selecting lager yeast. Uh, so over time, due to the fact that they were not brewing in the summer, they were, like I said, inadvertently selecting the yeasts, uh, which were better adapted to cold temperatures, which is important. So they also brewed enough beer in the colder months to span the summer months when they weren't brewing, and that also gave rise to the tradition of lagering lager beers for an extended amount of time, so you have all of your maturation at a cold temperature. Uh, so a lot of the techniques that we have are really old ones, which ended up uh, becoming more prevalent. A lot of uh, these things were then discovered through scientific method much later, so Pasteur discovered the yeast that the monks didn't know was there. Uh, and then that was eventually isolated down to the uh, lager beer yeast by Emil Hansen, who worked at the Carlsberg Brewery in Denmark. Uh, then he got to name that yeast Saccharomyces carlsbergensis. So uh, they, anyone who makes uh, lager beer has to think a little bit about the Carlsberg Brewery. Uh, so I guess we'll roll into the spear. Uh, Jason's on his way. Just okay. had a fiasco, so he'll be right along. But uh, you know, let's let's talk about his beer, and then he can kind of recap and everything. This is the first time you've ever had this beer. Yeah. So I'm not definitely uh, the guy that's uh, qualified to speak about his beer. Um, <laughs> mine would be up next. I guess uh, as 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 an expert, uh, you know, what what should you be looking for in a in a? Obviously, this is a gold medal winning beer. Yeah, no, I mean, and I don't know what category it was entered in. If I was to guess, I would say either Pilsner or Hellas, um, which I am guessing, obviously. Uh, the difference between Pilsner and Hellas is really hard to define. It's really just bitterness, and the bitterness difference isn't a lot either. Uh, I studied in Germany. I went to Weinstefan, which is a brewing university north of Munich, and a German brewmaster would be hard-pressed to tell you if this is a Hellas or a Pilsner as well, just because those two styles are so very slightly different. There's not a huge difference. Bitterness being the, the most, uh, really the only one that you can go on as far as uh, analytical data. Um, from color, they're both going to be really light, brewed with, and here's Jason. Yay. <laughs> Have you gone there? I apologize for being late. A mic? They're being recorded. Okay. Sorry. So, um, Gold Leaf Lager was originally brewed to be a Hellas. Perma, I literally just ran here. <laughs> that might not have been a good choice. 
Um, Gold Leaf Lager was originally brewed to be a Hellas, but we use a base, a Canadian Pilsner malt. And so when it first came out, it sort of didn't have the, maybe the same malt character that if we used all German malt. So essentially it had a little bit lighter character to it. And uh, instead of changing it, we kind of left it the way it was because we enjoyed its drinkability. And so even though it was originally designed to be a Hellas, um, we kind of, it's more like an international style lager, which is sort of a derivation of Pilsner that uh, that's brewed all around the world. Essentially, an all-malt gold lager. Uh, yeah, so one difference, I guess, well, the defining difference of a lager beer, so lagering is the maturation. Uh, it actually means to store in German, the word lager. Uh, once they were able to differentiate between yeasts, and uh, so in the 1800s, after Pasteur discovered yeast, another scientist started drilling down and being able to tell the difference between different types of yeast. Uh, the big difference between lager yeast and all of your top fermenting yeasts are the branching of the yeast cells, so the way that they reproduce. They do small chains, so there's usually no more than like three-ish cells branched together, whereas an ale yeast can branch together to a much larger uh, with 20 cells together. That means that they're large enough to ride the CO2 that they're producing to the top of the vat that they're uh, fermenting in, or the tank. So that's what makes them top or bottom fermenting. They're the same type of yeast, sort of. It's just that one differentiation in character that it, it reproduces slightly differently uh, that makes the difference between it rising to the top and the bottom. One of those big differences then is how much yeast is left in the beer after you're done with the old methods. Now we all ferment and, I'm sorry, all filter, or don't filter, but that, that technology is available to us today that wasn't back in the day. So a yeast that would settle out by itself and clarify the beer by itself was a big deal. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of like studying up for this talk, I kind of realized just how interesting lager yeast really is and how you know, loggers are the new kids on the block. I'm sure Ben may have mentioned, uh, mentioned that. Um, you know, lager yeast is a hybrid. And so what I kind of dug up was it wasn't until 1985 that scientists figured out that it was a hybrid and not a uh, pure species. And, um, and so what they figured out that it was half an ale strain, so Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae, and then half of another yeast, but they didn't know what that other yeast was. It was a Saccharomyces strain, but they didn't know where that genetic, 50% of the genetic material came from. Now, in 2011, some scientists found some growing on a, uh, on a beech tree, beech trees down in Patagonia. And initially, they surmised that maybe it got to Europe via fruit flies blown over, which I thought I was a little skeptical of that one. That's a pretty big stretch. But um, since then, they found this, uh, this yeast, like a Saccharomyces urbanus. And so, so they found this in China and Mongolia. So now I guess the, the idea is, okay, did it hybridize, did it become a hybrid 
in Asia or in Europe. So did this one yeast come over and have sexual relations with a nail strain in Europe, or did a nail strain have sexual relations in Asia and then create a the hybrid? But what's interesting is that I guess yeast can do this, and you probably know a lot more about this than I, but so they sexually reproduce, but then all their offspring is sterile. So it can only then reproduce by budding. So, then it, so this is kind of like a natural selection of you know, an ale strain, a wild yeast, kind of come together and making something entirely different. And then that stays the same because it reproduces by budding, by separation. So it's so kind of really fascinating uh, digging that stuff up. And, um, and then also kind of dug up that there are kind of two, two families or two strains of lager. And what that was was two different ale strains then being becoming hybrids with this third Saccharomyces uh, ubanius. Um, so 50% of the ale genetics are different because they're two different ale strains, but then that one, this one wild yeast or uh, player came in and then gave its genetics to it. So kind of fascinating stuff in a way. Yeah, I didn't want to get too far into it, but the, yeah, the Carlsbergensis isn't called that as much anymore. It's technically Saccharomyces pastorianos variation bionis, I believe. At a, and there's some numbers. When I was in school, they still called it Carlsbergensis, yeah. so I just stuck with it out of habit. Um, but there is new information as far as uh, the genetic mapping of the yeast. But I think we uh, wanted to hear more about the beer property. Okay. Um, now, just I, I was really no, jazzed when I was looking at this stuff. Um, so the gold leaf lager, like I said, it was developed to be a helis, and a helis is, um, you know, essentially was created. Spaden in uh, Munich was the first brewery to brew a helis as sort of a, um, I don't know if a reaction is the best word, but to kind of counter the popularity of Pilsner, which Ben will talk about. Um, when the, when the pill of sunshine comes out. So Spaden, they brewed a pale lager. Um, the hopping was a little less, probably to keep in line with uh, Munich, was known to have really malty beers. Um, but that was their version of a pale lager. Um, and so when you look at the description for Hellas, it kind of, you know, it mentions pale gold color, but also kind of a, a maltiness, a certain firm maltiness to it. Well. When I, use, when I designed this beer, the beer gets Canadian Pilsner malt as well as some German Pilsner malt. I kind of inject some German Pilsner malt to kind of blend it a little bit. I also add a little bit of Vienna malt, which I'll talk about more when uh, the Vienna lager comes out, and, and a little bit of acidulated malt. But what I found that just sort of the body and the, the texture and the malt character is just a little drier and a little more subdued than what I would call a Hellas. I mean, really... It, a lot of it's semantics because the beer style is just their guidelines. They're just trying to, you know, put method to a madness. But, you know, they're very blurred. And um, but in a Hellas refers to light, lightness of a beer, not caloric but color-wise. And so, really, I mean, it's an American Hellas in many ways. Uh, but for categorizing, in say competition, we entered an international pills or international lager category. And that beer, uh, I guess, two gold medals, a silver and a bronze at Great American Beer Festival in the last six years. 
for an international Pilsner category. So uh, they're going to start coming around and serving the Pilsner, so we'll go right into that. Um, I guess a little history on that one as well. Uh, this one's probably my favorite uh, type of lager beer. Uh, not only because I just like drinking it the best, but also because the fact that it's popular at all is uh, due to a, quite a lot of serendipity. Um, the first one was brewed in Pilsen in the Czech Republic, uh, which is now the Pilsner or Quell Brewery uh, in 1842. Uh, all of the original lager beers were smoky, dark beers that uh, were usually served like in stoneware mugs, so they weren't much to look at. That doesn't mean they weren't very popular. The Munich beers were still very popular since the 1600s, uh, but that's what they were popular for. Uh, so the citizens of Pilsen hired this Bavarian brewmaster, Joseph Grohl, to come and brew in their brand new brewery. Up until then, Pilsen was known for really bad beer. They'd been trying to copy the Munich style for a long time, and they have very soft water. Munich has very hard water. Uh, they didn't know a lot about water chemistry at the time, but all of the great beer styles, be it Bass from the water, Burton-on-Trent, etc., they all end up having a matching between the malt that they're using and the water that they have. So Munich, that worked, but when they tried to use that dark roasted malt in Pilsen, it made really bad beer. Uh, so... The first part that they needed to make Pilsen the success that it became was high-quality Moravian malt and hops, which they had because it's right there. But they, well, sorry, barley. The malt was not of high quality yet. That wasn't until they uh, learned how to do indirect fire kilning, which the English developed. Uh, so they took the English style of malting, malted the Moravian barley to get a, a pale malt. Once they had pale malt, then they also needed soft water, which they already had. Mixed that with the Bavarian style of lager brewing, they also ended up with a very clear beer, so one that you could actually see through. Add into that mix the Czech crystal bakers, which could make a lot of very good glassware. Then you had a beer that was clear. You could see through it. It was not, nothing anybody had ever seen before. Um, and for a long time, that was such a mark of quality to be able to see through something. You knew it wasn't full of mud, literally, or something else. Um, if your barkeep had dirty glassware, you'd know it all of a sudden. Before that, there wasn't really any way to know because the beer was so dark. So now it's the most popular style in the world uh, as far as, I mean, there's a lot of major beers that may not technically be a Pilsner style, but certainly advertise themselves as such. Uh, Germans typically call it a Pils without the N-E-R because Pilsner means it's from the city of Pilsen. Uh, that's just to avoid confusion when they make one. It's in the Pilsner style. So we followed that tradition as well. So we call our sunshine Pils instead of Pilsner. Um, typical recipe. It, the Pilsner's the other reason that I like it and lagers in general is it's all in the execution. The Pilsner recipe is simple, like it's Pilsner malt, uh, noble hops, lager yeast, soft water. Like 
and you use all Pilsner malt. There's no, you don't really need to develop a recipe. Everyone knows what the recipe is, but that execution, how well you can brew it, uh, is it's really the devil's in the details when it comes to lager brewing because it's it's difficult. So uh, we have a German brew house uh, that's really designed around these styles of beers. If anything, it's hard for us to brew the IPAs that we make with the brew house we have. Um, we had to do a lot of tweaking from the original design so that we could add as much hops as we want to, et cetera, for those IPAs. But uh, the Germans know how to make Pilsner, so their brew houses are designed to do that. So yeah, uh, recipe is Pilsner malt, soft water. Uh, we use Magnum for bittering, if anybody's into the, the details. That's a German uh, high alpha acid hop. We use Saz for aroma, along with Harrisbrucker. Uh, this one comes in at 4.5% ABV, so the alcohol content's not particularly high in a Pilsner, typically. Um, 45 IBU, which, uh, so the bitterness, or the international bitterness units would be typically above 30. And we're on a little bit on the high end, but that's, I mean, I'd say typical for a North German Pilsner. Uh, maybe not so typical for a South German Pilsner, although in South Germany, they make more Hellas anyway. It's uh, not every brewery would make a Pilsner. Um, we also typically use uh, domestic malt for this beer this year because the barley was so poor in North America last year. We couldn't make Pilsner with it. It's the only beer that we had to switch out for German malt, but because of the harvest, it was just bad weather in the U.S. Uh, the protein was too high, and it it, this beer is important enough to our brewery, not because of sales, but because of we just love getting into the technicality of how to make this beer. Uh, so we went ahead and ordered all of our malt for this beer from uh, Germany, which was the only way we could get the color, because we didn't want it anything but pale, pale golden. Uh, as soon as it starts getting a little bit darker, then we don't consider it a Pilsner, which I guess style guidelines are pretty strict on that as well. Um, and I will hand it off to Jason again. Uh, just, uh, just for differentiation's sake, uh, so the first beer you had was about 4.6% alcohol and 17 BUs, and so now you're drinking it uh, 4.5 and you say 45? That's the... I mean, I'd say we're, I put down what we have on our sales literature. Sure. I also work in the lab and know what they really are. Uh, we, we're usually more like around 38, so I'm sure that if the sales reps were around here, they would cringe that I'm giving you real numbers instead of what it says on the brochure. But the alcohol's right. The government checks on that. Um, and you all know inter, inter, IBU stands for International Bitterness Unit. So that's a measure of the bittering compound in hops. It's not a perfect way of describing a hop character. Or it's, it's really far from a perfect way of describing a hop character of a beer, but it really does describe essentially the, analytically the bitterness, but it doesn't even describe perceived bitterness and all those other things. But it's often a number that's tossed around. Um, it's of somewhat importance, I guess. I don't want to go into my diatribe. I'm an anti-IBU guy. Like, but they're useful. You have to have them. Well, I think they're very useful when you're talking about these beers that are brewed 
in the way that beers were brewed when that number was developed in the 50s. When you're talking about beers that are highly dry hopped, I, don't, I think that that number loses all relevancy uh, because it's, you're not measuring the, the bitterness anymore because you're measuring the absorbance of certain chemicals when you're measuring IBUs. It, yeah, IBUs with dry hop beers, just, it's, it can be useful to the brewer so that it, he can make a reproducible beer, but it's not something that you could say Comparatively, this beer is more bitter than the other, depending on how they dry hop it. So, uh, the beer that's being poured right now is the Devil's Backbone Vienna Lager. Uh, both the Gold Leaf Lager and the Vienna Lager is some of our original beers. We started back in 2008 at, as a brew pub south of Charlottesville in the Blue Ridge Mountains near a ski resort called Wintergreen. And uh, decide the, the beer layout for that to have four year-round beers and six seasonals. So always have a good rotation of different specialty beers because as a brewer, that's really fun to do. Uh, but of the four, year round, the four original year-round beers, Gold Leaf Lager was one and then Vienna Lager was another. Uh, both these beers are available and packaged year-round now um, coming from our production brewery. This beer is our best seller. This beer makes up about 60% of our sales and it's kind of found a really kind of cool little niche in Virginia, uh, Virginia especially, and we're also available in D.C. and Maryland. But the Vienna Lager, I like it because you know, it has color, it has flavor, it's very approachable, it's not overly bitter, and it just finds this like little sweet spot in there where... Normal beer drinkers, beer drinkers that might not be adventurous or maybe macro beer drinkers can enjoy a vino lager. But also someone who does like more flavorful beers can also enjoy a vino lager. And I'm not a huge kind of, I'm not a huge foodie, but this, is, this beer does, it pairs remarkably well. Um, I've done a lot of beer dinners and this one's always a, an easy one to uh, throw in the mix. Uh, the story of Vienna Lager is really kind of the story of modern lager brewery in general. And so the father of Vienna Lager, was called, I think, Vienna Type Lager back in the 19th century, was a guy named Anton Dreyer, who was uh, a, a Viennese brewer. And um, he went over to England, and along with a, a colleague of his from the Spaden Brewery, a guy named Saddlemar, and toured all these breweries uh, and learned the modern method of brewing. At that time, England was the most modern brewery nation on the, uh, the world. You know, it was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. They had these huge breweries using steam engines as well as using hydrometers and thermometers, which were pretty new back then. Um, so these guys, and then of course, the indirect kilned malt, which produced a much paler beer. So they went over there and they took these ideas and brought them back to Europe. And Anton Dreher brought it back to uh, Vienna. He bought a brewery in 1833 and started modernizing it, uh, digging huge cellars. I think he could have uh, 40,000 tons of ice at any one time. To, to, and then he found out that really temperature control was a key to, to brewing a lager beer. At around 1841, a year before the Pilsner beer made its revolution, he released his Vienna-type lager. And 
And that's really around the malt that he developed, which we now kind of call Vienna malt. And it is a, um, a lightly kilned malt. It's not as light as Pilsner malt, but um, it can give kind of a, a reddish hue to it. If you brew a beer with 100% Vienna malt, at least Vienna malt by today's standards, it'll give you a very orangish hue to it. Um, I can't say how the Vienna lager would have looked back then, but it, but it, did, it was a revolution in and of itself as well because the beers in that part of the world were really brown. They were dark, really thick, viscous, and then here comes a beer that is amber-colored. And so just as Pilsen later creates a revolution, this Vienna-type beer uh, really creates a revolution. And this guy, Dreher, he had the largest brewery in Europe. So... And he also bought several others um, in Bohemia um, and, and Hungary. And granted, this was the days of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so it wasn't just, you know, Austria's pretty spread out place. So he had three breweries, modernized it, and he started utilizing um, refrigeration, mechanical refrigeration in one of his breweries, so then they can brew uh, that's the type of beer year-round. So he's a really a pioneer in modern brewing, and he pioneered it with, with this type of beer. Um, this beer gets, it uh, starts at what we call 12 and a half Play-Doh, uh, which is uh, dissolved malt sugar in, in the beer before fermentation, the wort before fermentation. Uh, it comes in around 4.9% ABV, alcohol by volume, and a mere 18 IBUs. So this beer is a malty beer, it's a malt forward beer, but very smooth, very drinkable. You should get some toasted notes in it, a little bit of caramel. Uh, from the malts used. And the malt we use in this is uh, North American Pilsner malt, uh, Vienna malt, and both of those are roughly 80, 80 some percent of the total grist, as what we call it, is split between Vienna and Pilsner malt. Uh, and then the remaining uh, 20 some percent um, is split between Munich malt and a caramelized malt from Germany called Cara Amber. And it's kind of a mid-range uh, caramelized malt. And that's malt that's been, um, I'm not sure if they steep dry malt or they use green malt. Do you know what Fireman does for their Cara line? But essentially what it is is inside the barley and malt, when you're malting, taking barley and making it in malt, you let it germinate, you wet it, you let it germinate, and then you stop the germination process at a certain point by kilning or drying it. And depending on the temperature uh, you kiln at, you'll get different colors. The, that malt will pick up different colors. So if you want a really dark malt, you'll kiln at a higher temperature. Those colors will form. You know, roasted malts, black malts, you know, essentially you're almost burning it. Uh, Vienna malt, much lower, just slightly toasted. But a caramelized malt is then, they, they allow that they allow the uh, enzymes in the malt to break down the sugars inside the kernel, and which is what we do as brewers in the mash. We use malt, grind it up, hydrate it. Enzymes are activated. They start breaking down starch into sugar. But what the maltster will do for caramelized malt is give it a, a condition where those enzymes are activated inside each kernel. They start making sugar, and then they dry it, and that sugar caramelizes or crystallizes. And so sometimes they're called caramel malt, sometimes crystal malt. Uh, really synonymous. And so the combination of those four malts give you the malt character in this beer. Um, Vienna Lager kind of 
saw its heyday really in many ways in the late 19th century. That was really popular when it came out in the mid 19th century. It started to wane uh, from my readings about 1870, 1880. Uh, was kind of starting to retreat. Pilsner was becoming king, um, taking over. But after that, as Vienna lagers waned, uh, Vienna Lager made its way to Mexico when uh, Emperor Maximilian was there uh, in the 1860s, so some Austrian breweries went down there and took Vienna-type beer to Mexico, where it remained. It almost kind of uh, was locked in a little bit of a time warp. And so as it was decreasing in the European continent, it was still being brewed in Mexico. And uh, a couple beers are sort of uh, lineage of that. Uh, the Negro Modelo and Dos Equis, uh special are two of sort of the the hand-downs of that type of beer uh, that are still available to this day. Now, obviously, they've been, they've been watered down a little bit with uh, adjuncts and uh, syrups and that sort of thing, but it's kind of cool to see that historical lineage where, hey, looking at Dos Equis, well, you can trace that back to Austrians, you can trace it back to this guy who essentially modernized lager brewing in Europe. So, kind of neat. No, definitely. Um... Anton Dreyer had it a little tough, too, I know, with his first brewery. Um, he uh, came from a rich family, but his uh, mom made him buy the first brewery from her. It was in the family already, but she wouldn't let him just have it. Uh, it was a Fisher-Price, my first brewery. Yeah. Um, and so, in this tasting, uh, Jason and I talked about how we thought it would be best to go in order... Uh, we're basically going from low alcohol, low bitterness, to higher alcohol. The bitterness with the Pilsner is uh, out of order, but you can only... I don't know that the... I mean, the Pilsner last wouldn't work either, not after the Doppelbach. Uh, so we're going to go with our Doppelbach next. Uh, like all of the beers we're talking about, uh, it has an interesting history as well. Um, or at least I think so. Uh, it... Starts in the 14th century in Einbeck, uh, which is a city in Germany. Uh, back then, every citizen was given the right to brew beer, and the city had over 700 brewmasters at the time. By the uh, 15th century, the beer was shipped as far as Denmark, Amsterdam, uh, Danzig, Riga, and even into the beer city of Munich. Uh, in 1612, a brewer from Einbeck came all the way down to Munich to brew Einbecker beer, which they'd been shipping down there. The Bavarians kept asking for this Einbeck beer, which in their dialect they pronounced Einbock. Later on, this became shortened to Bock beer, and uh, Doppelbock is a stronger version of that Bock beer, which was often, uh, which was started by the Einbeck brewery, technically. Uh, this Doppelbach, though, was not directly related to that because it was brewed by the monks. Uh, this was something that they brewed for Lent, uh, having a lot more alcohol and actually sugar left in it. Uh, it gives them enough to get through Lent, uh, which ends up giving rise to the saying in German uh, that beer is liquid bread because they sustain themselves fairly on this. Um, I think I would get through Lent fairly well if that's all I had to... Get by on though. 
So Doppelbach beer is defined today in the German tax code as having at least 18 degrees Play-Doh, which means there has to be at least 1.6 pounds of sugar per gallon in the wort. Uh, the wort is the, the liquid that the beer, uh, that is beer before it's fermented and turns into beer. Uh, so the amount of sugar ends up relating to how much alcohol is formed in fermentation. With Doppelbach beers, you're usually above 7%. Ours comes in at a healthy 8.2% alcohol. Before scientific instruments, which came, as we discussed earlier, via England into the German uh, brewing world, uh, a good brewer could still measure whether or not there was enough sugar content in the wort to produce a Bach beer or a Doppelbach. Uh, there were brewers back then that were known to pour a liter of beer onto a wooden bench on the bench, and if the bench stuck to the seat of their pants, then there was enough sugar in there. <laughs> uh, the definition of Bach beer relying solely on strength means that there are no other style definitions for Bach beer technically. So you can have a wheat Doppelbach, which would not even be a lager beer because it would be made with ale yeast. Uh, you can have a light colored, dark colored, uh, it's kind of wide open because it is mainly a tax determination. Um, this would be considered a uh, dark Doppelbach in Germany, or a uh, dunkles Doppelbach. One of the most well-known examples of that particular style of beer is uh, Salvatore, which is brewed by uh, the Pauliner Brewery in Munich. Um, in tribute to that beer, nearly all breweries in Germany and elsewhere that brew this style of beer add that A-T-O-R to the end of the, the name, which we did with Troganator, um, which is just hearkening back to that brewery and their beer. Um, if you were to have a wheat beer, which, is which isn't lager, but if you were going to have a wheat Bach beer, most of them end with U.S., which harkens back to the Aventinas made by the... Uh, Schneider Brewery. So this recipe uh, has two row pills malt in it, uh, and we use Gambrinus and Munich malt to give it the color. Uh, a lot of the color that you get from uh, the caramel malts that Jason was talking about earlier comes from the browning effect. It's the same type of reaction that you would have if you were grilling or pan searing something. So those flavors that you would want in meat as well, like a steamed steak does not taste nearly as well as one that was grilled or pan seared at least, uh, add flavor to the beer for the same reason. Um, we use German hops in this. Uh, well, I should, we, ha we use German heritage hops. So we use Magnum for bittering, which is a German hop, but then we also use Crystal, which uh, is not a German hop, but it does have German lineage. So it does have Hollertau Middlefru as one of its parents. And uh, I think it comes out as a, one that would pass off well in Germany. In fact, it's sold in Germany very tiny, tiny amount. I think like maybe a case a month. But we can say we made it into the market. <laughs> um, and with that, I think we've finished the, this part. Cool. Should we open up for some questions? Uh, cool. How'd you guys like the beers? Good? 
One thing I should mention is over here, Spiegelau has a, a kind of a booth area. They want you to uh, have a tulip glass if you want. So on your way out, uh, grab a tulip glass. Don't grab this one. They want people to look at that one. But the tulip glasses are fine. <laughs> um, I guess I'll start uh, with a question, if that's okay. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, lager is the most popular beer in the world. It's a little bit harder to make and definitely takes time. And I know you guys are cranking uh, like so many small and independent breweries are. Why make a lager then? If you can make you know, much more ale in the time that it takes to make a lager, what is it you guys personally being brewers or what is it you know, from your brewery culture standpoint that makes you want to make award-winning lagers? Well, I think we'll both answer this one separately, but uh, from my personal standpoint, I got into brewing for the technology aspect. Like, I always liked fermentation science. I could have gone into, let's say, making wine, but there's a lot less technology. A lot of it's agricultural. So if the harvest is bad with the grapes, then the wine turns out bad. Brewers don't get that crutch. And we're good enough to be able to pull it off year after year to make beer. Like, I mean, we had to order malt from Germany this year to deal with the crop that was bad for our Pilsner this year. But no one that didn't talk to me about that knows that it comes out the same. We got stuff that, that the specifications meet the same thing. So I think part of lager brewing is being in that, I don't know, the beer nerd, but the technological beer nerd. Uh, zone, which is where I live all day anyway. Uh, I don't own this brewery, so I didn't decide to make the beer either, but I know that the owners did want to make, especially the Doppelbach, and the Pilsner for that matter, to show that they could, because it is hard, and it's more of a prestige thing. Neither one of them sell more, that, I mean, we sell more IPA, that's a fact. And the the Doppelbach is a huge production nightmare because it takes forever. Uh, we definitely have to buy more tanks. It costs us money. It would be so much easier for us to make nothing but ales. But I think it's uh, in the whole craft beer, uh, forge your own path mentality that they really believed in making these beers uh, because they thought they could make them well, and honestly, until recently, it was really hard to get really good examples of European continental lagers. Now, I don't mean that Pollaner didn't export to here, but a six-month-old Pollaner has a hard time shining against a m very fresh American-made example of a German Pilsner. A Pollaner Munich can stand on its own legs, no, no questions, but uh, that's... They can't warp it here yet, thank goodness. So that gives us a chance to get in that market. Yes, our decision uh, to brew a lot of lagers kind of comes from sort of my, what attracted me to lagers to begin with. I started my career at an English-style brewery back in 1996, and we did a lot of Cascales, all English or British-inspired uh, beers. It was an English equipment. It was open fermentation. It was You couldn't get any more English than what I did. Um, but I liked all beers, and I still like all beers. Um, we had a great German style brewery in Baltimore where I was working uh, called De Gruens, uh, Baltimore Bruin. The guy went to Weinstefan, which you went there, right? Which is the rock star school of uh, German uh, 
Bruin education. Uh, so I like German beers, but it wasn't until I went out to Bruin School at UC Davis in 1998 that, and as I started to learn more about the science of beer, I started getting more interested in lager brewing because what turns me on is very much like Ben, the technical aspects of it and the process. And it, there is a couple little more steps involved often in making a, uh, a lager beer or a very, it, traditional is kind of a sliding scale because that doesn't really mean much because tradi like traditional Oktoberfest or you mean the brown Oktoberfest or the amber Oktoberfest or the pale modern Oktoberfest. So it's kind of weird, but if you're trying to make Cla maybe classic is a better word, or, or just really artisanal lager beers, there are some more steps and hurdles that you have to deal with. I also like the drinkability of lagers. Sometimes, you know, just a nice, crisp lager, a nice, crisp pilsner is just really refreshing, and I don't have to think too much about it. And there's something about, you know, hanging out with your friends, you know, that where you're, you're, you're hanging out with your friends and you're talking to them and not necessarily always about the beer. And so there, that's kind of a nice little cultural aspect too. And then really what kind of led me into attracting lagers is my contrary nature where I got into brewing and the craft beer revolution was, you know, macro light beers. Then people started brewing more flavorful beers, uh, majority of being ales. Ales are much, uh, the different compounds often more flavorful, different flavors. Um, more esters, more fruity notes. And so that's where I started. And then I sort of, in one way, just it's like, I want to do something different. And lager beer, in a way, in our segment of the industry, is a little bit different because, as you mentioned, there's not a lot of people doing it. And so half my career is spent made, like, kind of really focusing on more Germanic-inspired beers. And so when I opened up Devil's Backbone, I kind of put both wanted to do a lot of German style beers, but also all kinds of other stuff because, you know, I think we all enjoy beers from all over. And, but anyway, long story short, um, you know, we have, three, we have five year-round beers in package uh, from Devil's Backbone, and three of them are lagers, the Gold Leaf, the Vienna, and then the Schwartz beer, which we're pouring downstairs. I recommend you come by and taste it because that's sort of a, a brewer's favorite in our brewery. Um, kind of has a cult following the Schwartz beer, and that's just a, a great beer in and of itself, a really good niche beer. But anyway, you know, I just like them, and I think, but for us, it really made a, it, it hit a niche. Vienna Lager just found this hole, and like I said, it's like 60% of our sales, and that's huge, and um, it's kind of cool, and it found a hole because not a lot of people were doing it. Any other questions? Oh, over here. State your name. My name is Josh. Uh, I am a home brewer, and I wonder if you have any tips for someone that's looking to brew their first lager. Uh, temperature control. It's the same thing that 200 years ago they determined was the most important part. Uh, when I home brewed back a long time ago now, um, I didn't have a dedicated refrigerator or anything. Uh, I did have a window unit, and I had a very high uh, electric bill that month because I ran the air conditioner <laughs> on high the entire time. Uh, my brother, who also lived in the house at the time, this was when I was in college, uh, told me I could not brew any more lager beers unless I wanted it. I mean, it was too expensive. That beer cost like $150 for five gallons. 
<laughs> Not because of the ingredients, that was on top. It was just the electric bill. But yeah, uh, temperature control, like honestly, like we ferment at 53 degrees Fahrenheit, and if we get much above that, like if we hit 56 even, uh, we don't. I mean, it's nailed at 53, but it doesn't take much more than two degrees to make it completely different. Uh, we lost electricity at the brewery due to a flood uh, maybe four years ago. The only beer that we had to dump was the Troganator because it was in fermentation and it got up uh, above 60 degrees and it was just awful. I mean, for us it was awful. I'm, I'm sure it was drinkable, but it did not taste like it was supposed to taste. Uh, I, I concur. And uh, when I was homebrewing many years ago, I did it the old-fashioned way and only brewed them in the wintertime. I grew up at a old drafty farmhouse and uh, I had this place in the basement underneath the stairs and that's where I fermented and lagered my, my lagers and you know so that was old-fashioned way but you know there's so much neat stuff on the internet now there's so much kind of like you can retrofit coolers I mean you have to invest money though that's the thing Yeah, you can definitely, like, I'm a little bit outside of the homebrew technology. Like, there's definitely people better at it than me, but back when I was still doing it, I know you could get Johnson controls, temperature controllers, uh, plug that into a chest freezer or a refrigerator, and then get a much tighter control on the uh, temperature of those units than, like, the installed 0 to 10 cold, colder. Yeah, um, but hitting your temperature during fermentation is, is of utmost importance. Uh, and then lager it for a while, um, as long as you can wait. I mean, not forever, but uh, I'd say a minimum of two weeks. Another little tip, uh, pitch enough yeast. A lot of times, uh, kind of prepackaged yeast, you have to pitch more lager yeast than you do ale, so treat it like a lager and don't treat it like an ale. And so... Lagers are more expensive to brew uh, if you're buying yeast because you have to use more of it. Got one more. We can basically hang out for the most part, and hopefully you guys are accessible to, for people to come talk, but I think that'll start moving, and if you thought the door was irritating, wait until you have a ton of people coming through, too. So we got one more question, and then maybe a wrap-up question, and, and we can get out of here. So All right. Yeah, hi, I'm also a home brewer. I'm curious, uh, so do you, uh, when do you, what temperature do you pitch the yeast at? Sometimes they talk about pitching it at 60 or 62 and then driving the temperature down. Other people talk about like refrigerating the word overnight to get the temperature down and then pitching the yeast. So I'm curious what you do and whether it varies from, you know, beer to beer. From my perspective, that advice was given from people who like to grow massive yeast and not necessarily make a quality beer. So we always pitch a couple degrees cooler than what we ferment at and we let it temperate into its kind of sweet spot. Uh, so yeah, that would get a fermentation going, but is it gonna be a beneficial fermentation for a lager beer? Is it gonna be a quality fermentation? Is it gonna give you the flavors you want? And my opinion is no. I would agree. Uh... You have to have a lot of healthy yeast to start a good fermentation. Um, and 
part of that reason, especially commercially, but it doesn't matter even for home brewing, is because you want to start colder. You never want to start warmer. Um, you want that beginning of fermentation to be actually cooler than what you actually want to ferment at. So we start ferment, I mean, we have our temperature controls on our tank so they don't turn on until it needs to, it's got, trying to get above 53 degrees. Uh, I don't remember exactly what we knock out at, but I believe the wart's coming out at around 50. Uh, but like you said, just basically a couple of degrees cooler than what we actually want to ferment at. Then the energy and heat produced by the yeast bring it up to 53 within a fairly short amount of time, like less than 24 hours. Uh, because we have to and I mean, the Troganator is a monster as far as like that much alcohol, that much sugar. We have to pitch tons of yeast. So our target is 20 million cells per mil if you can quantify how much you're putting in. All right, quick question before we go. Uh, it's summer's coming up. Need a, a knock your socks off lager food pairing for the grill. Uh, go. Uh, I mean, Pilsner's the beer for summer, uh, whether it's ours or anybody else's, it doesn't matter, but, uh, and then honestly, Pilsner pairs with everything from the grill, so that's an easy one. Let me go old-fashioned, Pilsner and fish. Give it up for Jason and Ben, guys. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2015, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2015, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.